1623, and you are the Pope. Congratulations, Bishop of Rome, Vicar of Jesus Christ, successor of the Prince of the Apostles, Supreme Pontiff of the Universal Church, Primate of Italy, Archbishop and Metropolitan of the Roman Province, Sovereign of the State of Vatican City, Servant of the Servants of God, the Holy Papa, in Latin. We'll just call you the Pope. Now, you're Pope Urban VIII. You chose the name. Which is a little strange, because Pope Urban I was possibly beheaded in office. And Pope Urban VI was likely poisoned to death. And Pope Urban VII, the one right before you, only lasted 13 days. But hey, you're the Pope. Your real name is Maffeo Barberini, of the famous Barberini family. Like the Medicis, only more so. Here are some of your hobbies. Number one, nepotism. You'll appoint your brother and two of your nephews to be cardinals. You'll make another nephew prefect of Rome and commander of the Vatican army. The Barberinis are on their way to amassing some 105 million scudi in wealth, thanks to you. That's a lot of scudi. Leonardo da Vinci was paid about 100 scudi a painting. Caravaggio made about 15 scudi. You can buy a lot of art with 105 million. Which brings me to your second hobby, art. Sculpture, painting, poetry, you can't have enough of it, including four incredible paintings that recently made their way to the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Christ on the Cross, the Archangel Michael, Jacob wrestling with the angel, the expulsion of Adam and Eve from Eden. All of it commissioned by you or your family. It's good to be the Pope. But your third hobby, perhaps surprisingly, is science. In fact, you're good friends with Galileo, the astronomer. Much of your family is. Even though Galileo is starting to suspect that the Earth goes around the Sun, not the other way around, as the Church would have it. You have Galileo over to the Pope House all the time. Until, in 1633, you have him arrested. You haul him before the Inquisition, which is headed, surprise, by your nephew. And you put Galileo on trial. A trial that will determine the nature of the universe in the course of the modern world. For reasons so personal, only you know them for sure. In this is The Object, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. 
Today, the story of the Barberinis, the family that loved art and power and each other and staked it all on standing in the way of the modern world. I'm Tim Gearing. Here's the thing about being Pope a long time ago. A lot of people want you dead. Sorry. As soon as you're chosen, really, a lot of people want you gone. Especially the cardinals who didn't choose you. Eventually, even some of the people you ostensibly serve, the common folk, want you gone. You can be Pope a long time if you're lucky. And people get bored. A lot of your time as Pope is spent figuring out how to stay Pope. There's an entire History Channel story devoted to ten grisly papal deaths. Pope John VIII, poisoned by one of his own priests, who got tired of waiting for the poison to work and hit John over the head with a hammer. Pope Stephen VI, who put his predecessor on trial, even though he'd been dead for months, had him dug up and dressed up and put on a throne so he could be accused in person, as it were, only to find himself, a short time later, strangled to death by the other Pope's supporters. So, it's not surprising that only a short time after Maffeo Barberini becomes Pope Urban VIII, predictions begin to circulate about his imminent death. The Barberinis aren't exactly making a lot of friends. The Spanish cardinals think they favor the French, and so do the Germans. Because the Pope isn't supporting the Habsburg Empire in the Thirty Years' War. And regular folk aren't thrilled that the family is bankrupting the state to pay for their art habit. The Pope is the latest to fall for Bernini, the great sculptor who ends up working for eight popes. Even though he's a mess, and his brother is maybe worse. At one point... Bernini is having an affair with the wife of an assistant, only to find out that she's having another affair with his brother Luigi. He attacks Luigi with some kind of crowbar, breaking two of his ribs, and chases him through the streets of Rome with a sword. Then he sends a servant to slash the woman's face. Well, Pope Urban VIII simply tells Bernini to get married and finds him about the cost of a sculptural bust. The Barberinis even decide to take some bronze girders out of the Pantheon for Bernini to make the famous baldachin at St. Peter's, the canopy covering the high altar, which bears the family crest of the Barberinis, three little honeybees, and to make cannons to bomb their enemies. A 
saying starts to circulate. What the barbarians didn't do, the Barberini did. If the Pope doesn't seem worried about these predictions of his death, well, he is. Sure, they're mostly astrological projections about the positions of the sun and the moon and planets. But in the 1600s, as the modern world is starting to take shape, science and art, faith and fact, they're all blending together. All different ways to discover the truth. You say astronomy, I say astrology. Let's call the whole thing science. Even Galileo is secretly dabbling in alchemy. And Isaac Newton is dabbling not so secretly. Pope Urban VIII is a cosmopolitan guy, well-read, open-minded in his way. A big believer in astrology. And why not? Kings do it. Popes do it. Even educated plebes do it. But people are starting to be hauled before the Inquisition for less. Science and religion are colliding, in public if not in private. And so, in 1628, when the Pope is predicted to die during the second solar eclipse of the year, on December 25th, he asks his own astrologers if there's anything to it. And they agree. The Pope is a goner on Christmas Day. The Pope is now freaking out. But he can't show it, right? So, he reaches out to this well-known priest and astrologer who spent much of the last 27 years in a dungeon of the Inquisition in Naples. This guy named Tommaso Campanella, who seems like one of those guys in Goodfellas who you can't be sure is going to hug you or stab you. The Pope has Tommaso disguise himself like a peasant and sneaks him into the papal palace with his bag of magic. And there, in a special room, sealed off from the public, they prepare for the Christmas eclipse. They put on white robes, sprinkle rose vinegar around the room, and burn incense. They adorn the room with white silk cloths and budding branches and recreate the heavens on the ceiling. On the floor, they draw the twelve signs of the zodiac and they play music to attract Jupiter and Venus, whatever that may be. When it's all over and the moon has passed over the sun, the Pope is still alive. Meanwhile, Galileo is staring at the moon and the planets and becoming even more convinced that Copernicus was right. The earth moves. The church calls him in to explain himself. Why does the Bible say, then, that at one point God makes the sun stop? Doesn't that imply that normally the sun moves? 
Why does it also say that the sun rises in one end of the heavens and runs its course to the other? Doesn't that suggest that the sun moves? It's the Pope, of all people, who throws Galileo a lifeline. Why doesn't he write a book arguing both sides? The Barberinis, after all, understand better than most that faith and science can coexist. Science is a kind of art in the 1600s, striving for beautiful explanations as much as any religion. Why keep Bernini around and all the other artists and astrologers on the payroll if they are not also conjuring something of the mystery of life? So, Galileo does write a book, 500 pages arguing both positions, that the sun moves around the earth and the earth moves around the sun, presented as a series of dialogues between one worldview and the other embodied by different characters. It's well-written in Italian and easily understood. Certainly, the Pope understands. Maybe too well. Before the Pope can deal with Galileo, another astrological prediction of his death starts making the rounds of the Church. And this time... It seems so legitimate that the cardinals of Spain and Germany start making their way to Rome to choose the next pope. The prediction is put out by this astrologer priest, Orazio Morandi, the most revered astrologer in Rome, who drops his prophecy during a small gathering of clerics in his chambers. This long metaphorical monologue in which he doesn't name the Barberini specifically, but he doesn't have to. Quote, They will be changed into bees, he says. He will be destroyed. And everyone knows, of course, that the family crest of the Barberinis is a bunch of bees. This small group of listeners is mesmerized by this prophecy. So... Randy gets a little bolder. He fills in some details and pretends to have the prophecy sent to the Vatican from some unknown source in France. The Pope's real love, right? That gets the Pope's attention, especially when it says the moment of death will be another eclipse. So, once more, the Pope calls in Tommaso Campanella this time to the lakeside fortress Castel Gandolfo, away from the Vatican busybodies. And once more, Campanella works his magic. The Pope survives. But by now the cardinals have arrived in Italy. And if God won't take this Pope out, they decide, they will. When the Pope discovers what the Cardinals are up to, he sends them away, all of them, back to their home parishes. Be gone. Orazio Morandi is arrested and tortured and accused of sorcery. 
Anyone who knows anything about his prophecy is hauled before the court and tortured, hung from a rope until their arms pop from their sockets and their muscles tear. The minions of the Inquisition crash around the parishes of Rome, searching for evidence. And they find it everywhere. Papers on astrology and magic, hidden behind a painting, stashed in an organ loft. And a picture emerges, an embarrassing picture, of a church steeped in science, or superstition, whichever you prefer. The Pope has seen enough. Mirandi is kept in a small cell in a Roman prison until he dies. In November 1630, possibly a poisoning. The following spring, Pope Urban writes up a papal bull, an official decree, right? Called the inscrutable judgments of God, suggesting there are some things we can't know and aren't supposed to know. It bans any member or official of the Roman Catholic Church from engaging in astrological prophecy. Galileo comes out with his book the next year, in 1633. And in one sense, it's a great triumph. It's the first time his argument about the nature of the universe is put in print. And the church asked for it, right? In another sense, he just wrote his death sentence. He decides to have his argument for the world revolving around the sun, voiced by a character named Salviati, and the church's argument for the sun revolving around the earth, voiced by a character named Simplicio. And let's just say, Simplicio lives up to his name. He keeps proposing things that play right into Salviati's hands. By the end, he's basically making the argument for Galileo. He's a foil. And well, he's named Simplicio. The Pope is not amused. Galileo is put on trial before the Roman Inquisition and is ordered to recant his heresies. Some of his chief defenders are sent out of town. His enemies close in. And remember, the Inquisition is presided over by the Pope's nephew. But the nephew turns out not to be the real problem. In fact, when all is said and done, the nephew votes for lenience, sending Galileo not to prison, or a monastery to repent for the rest of his life, but off to a friend, the Archbishop of Siena, and eventually house arrest in the hills of Tuscany. Pope Urban VIII, on the other hand, never forgives Galileo. In hindsight, it's clear that Galileo is going down after the Pope discovers the astrologers plot against him and bans the practice. The world is changing, 
and the arts and sciences will eventually undermine every kind of authority, not least the Pope. And Urban knows it. Faith and reason, two sides of the same coin, will become harder and harder to reconcile. Galileo is supposed to stop writing about his heretical idea. In fact, according to his forced confession before the Inquisition, he's supposed to stop thinking about it. I have been enjoined by this holy office, he confesses, to abandon the false opinion which maintains that the sun is the center and immovable. But he manages to smuggle out a manuscript about two new sciences, physics and mechanics, and he's visited by some of the new guard of philosophers and thinkers around Europe, people like John Milton and Thomas Hobbes. In 1638, Galileo goes totally blind, and when he dies four years later, the Grand Duke of Tuscany wants to build a monument to him and hold a great public funeral but the Pope refuses. Galileo is quietly buried in the basement of a bell tower. The Pope has taken refuge in the arts, gilding the walls and ceilings of his palaces with frescoes and paintings and becoming Bernini's greatest patron confronting the forces of change with emotion and majesty and mystery. He commissions multiple paintings of the Archangel Michael defeating Satan, like the one at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. And the angel becomes a kind of symbol for him, the great defender of the faith. But the walls are closing in. And when Urban dies, defeated and disgraced, His greatest enemy among the cardinals becomes the new pope. And the new pope sends the Barberini's packing into exile and seizes their property. Nearly a hundred years later, when the scientific revolution is in full swing, the remains of Galileo are dug up and brought up to the north aisle of the church proper opposite the tomb of Michelangelo, part of a Grand Duke's plan to modernize the state and reduce the power of the church. An immense monument is built over Galileo's sarcophagus in beautiful white marble with statues of geometry and astronomy. And in the center, high above the floor, a bust of Galileo himself holding his telescope and staring into the heavens. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. I'm Tim Gehring. We'll be back in the new year with a new season 
and bonus episodes to get you through the winter. Subscribe and be the first to hear them. And thanks very much for listening.